Radio Vermont, WDEV, takes no responsibility for the opinions or statements made by the House Calls Vermont show host or their guests. The information provided during the House Calls Vermont show is offered only as a public service and should not be used as a substitute for obtaining any professional advice from a licensed professional. Our house, in the middle of our street, our WDEV presents House Calls Vermont with hosts Jim Bradley and Chris West. Each week, a new topic specific to building or renovating in the Green Mountains and your calls. Brought to you by R.K. Miles, a third-generation family-owned business. Proud to be your local buildings material supplier. Find a location near you at rkmiles.com. By Wytha Windows, high-performance passive house windows and doors. Online at wythewindows.com. By Poly Construction, for over 30 years known for anything construction, big or small jobs. One call does it all. P-O-L-L-I construction.com. Ken Libby of the Stowe Area Realty Group at Keller Williams Stowe, your trusted advisor, 802-793-2002. By Curtis Lumber, with two locations in Vermont, Williston and Burlington. Request a quote for your next project online at curtislumber.com. By Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, with locations in St. Albans, Enosburg, Swanton, Derby, and Middlesex. By Shamrock Painting, painting and custom wood finishing, shamrockpainting.com. By Matt Clark's Northern Basement Systems. For all things basementy, northernnefoundations.com. Your participation is encouraged. You can call the listener line with questions at 802-244-1777 or toll free at 877-291-8255. Now, House Calls Vermont with Jim and Chris. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Chris, how are you? Um, uh, both of us seem to be sick at home, so I'm doing okay, but uh, not healthy enough to be in the studio. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing pretty well. Just have some remnants of the uh, dreaded COVID, and uh, good thing I have a call dump button, or at least the sound, so I don't share too much with the, the public. But uh, yeah, it's definitely been a, a fun battle this last couple of weeks. But hey, we're on the other side of this and going forward, and I trust that most people today being that it's still in the negative number temperature-wise, hey, someone found the recipe for ice again, and they've made a lot of it. But uh, and that's one of the topics we're going to be talking yeah, well, about. Well, I fortunately, uh, unfortunately, I'm ill, but uh, fortunately don't have COVID. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean that either of us are in the studio. So this is going to be an interesting day. So, so, and there's a little we bit of We were talking about everybody. what we wanted to talk about during this particular episode, and you were very, very vociferous and clear that you wanted to talk about workforce development and what's going on. You've had a couple of opportunities to testify in front of the Senate and the the, uh, the House, the State House, um, different yes. committees about what's going on with workforce development. Why don't you give us a, an update? Okay, so here we are. Now, we, yeah, this is just something that as much as Chris and myself are very passionate about building correctly and weatherizing correctly and making sure that as homeowners and contractors, everybody knows the best practices to get things right so we can do it once and be done with it and not have to redo it again and waste more resources, more money, and everything else. 
and you know, as a state in Vermont, we're seeing across the nation as being very forward thinking about being more efficient in our construction as far as, you know, making buildings that are more efficient, especially since it gets this cold outside and it, it can get that much warmer on the other side during the summer. And so those big temperature swings uh, in between, we, we have to make sure that our building stock, you know, commercial, residential, is going to be very, very robust and resilient to preserve it, but also to help the health and safety of the building occupants. But with that being said, as much as we are getting more funding to throw at some of these, um, you know, initiatives uh, or, or invest in them, I should say, uh, the biggest component that's missing and is going to continue to be a bigger driver of cost and timelines and schedule and everything else is the workforce and the available workforce. We've heard about it during COVID um, through every industry in our nation, retail, hospitality, you know, with hotels and restaurants, everything else, there being a huge worker shortage, transportation, you know, with, you know, drivers and everything else, but also in the trades. We're just getting people to, you know, start in the trades, whether you're an electrician, a plumber, a roofer, a a carpenter, or whatever, has been really challenging. And, And there's really some startling statistics out there that cannot go ignored. You know, for over 25 years, we've known as a nation, and it's been, you know, everyone's been talking about it to the point where some people have become very jaded in the discussion, but you're not going to have an opportunity to be jaded for too much longer because, you know, for 25 years, we've known that the baby boomer generation was going to be sunsetting out of the workforce. And during COVID, that process has accelerated. Someone stepped on the gas, and what's happened is since July of 2021, we have seen 4 million workers plus each month exiting the workforce. That means in a couple of weeks, we're looking at more like 28 million people exiting the workforce. 90% of those in our nation are 55 and above, 90%. So that's, that's pretty extreme. A lot of people have said, you know, that they've just been taking the COVID money and staying home and everything else. That's a very small percentage. We're looking at 90% of the workforce are retiring, you know, and getting out and not coming back necessarily. Um, so with that, what does that do for us? I mean, we have all these initiatives where we're, you know, so many thousands of houses being weatherized and, and everything else by, you know, 2030. We have the, the, the hope that we're going to be, you know, the governor's initiative for the missing middle um, housing uh, component to make sure we can build more houses for people in the middle incomes to make it more affordable. Um, you know, all these are great, and, and that money is going to be welcome to help these things go forward. But if we don't have the workforce, how can we get things done? And that's the crucial part of this, and I think we're missing that. And it's, a lot of it is just the way And the governor uh, was interviewed, and he was on, uh, I think it was WCAX earlier this week, about how um, there's a stigma about being in the trades where people think, oh, gosh, if I can't do anything else, you used to be said that, oh, I'll just teach. Well, that's not a great metric anyway. Um, Or there was, you know, if I can't do anything else, well, at least that kid could be funneled into the trades program. It should not be the last resort. It should be your first choice. And that first choice is a very excellent career path that is, monetarily speaking, is wonderfully, you know, financially beneficial to the person who gets into this, especially when you see such a labor shortage, you're going to see the higher demand at higher wages for these individuals to be highly skilled in what they do. So it's not just enough to know how to pilot a shovel or which end of the hammer to use. You have to understand what Chris and I have been talking about for, you know, years now about building science 
and how certain materials interact and how do you build a safe, durable building. You have to know this, and that's, that's, that education is derived from a lot of continuing education throughout your entire life when you're in the building trades. And, and with that, when I'm seeing income levels, Chris, when I'm seeing these income levels now for individuals where if you're in Chittenden County and you're trying to find an unskilled laborer, if you're not paying 20 to $25 an hour, somebody else is going to be for a different field, and that worker is going to go that direction. And yeah, I don't, I don't think we've seen historically, at least not in the last 30 years, a, a situation where the, uh, the worker really has the deciding uh, vote on whether or not uh, they're going to work for a certain price point, right? And I remember uh, working with you when we first started doing this 12 years ago, 10 years ago, where we were looking at uh, a, a non-skilled entry-level carpenter making an hourly wage of, of 15 to 16 or $17 an hour, and that's now, like you just said, 20 to $25 an hour. And sure. that is shifting everything, including the price point. Now, it's a good thing because these workers are going to have more money and that's going to make their housing and other things in their life uh, more uh, affordable. But it is driving up prices around, which has a knock-on effect further on down the line where the people who are building these houses are saying, well, I've got to pay more to get these houses built, um, and uh, so they're going to be charging more. Um, what What is is the uh, the missing middle? Can you can you give us a little more, yeah, a little more about that? You know, after the holidays, most of us can look down and we'll find that missing middle really quickly um, because of how much we ate. But that's not the middle they're talking about. Um, the missing middle is the middle-income uh, individuals. So we've done a lot in our state to help low-income individuals. You know, there's a lot of effort being placed into you know, the homeless situation that we've had in Vermont and making sure people are properly housed. A lot of hotels that have been you know, repurposed or being repurposed to, for permanent housing. And, you know, so that takes a bit of work because just because it was an existing hotel, it doesn't mean it doesn't need to be fit up for a transitional use in, you know, for more permanent housing for individuals like a dorm situation. So we've done a lot there as far as making sure there were monies for um, these type of programs. And also when you get people that are coming in from out of state or people who do live here who make a very um, healthy income, um, they're able still to afford even these higher prices. And so you've got that upper end of the housing stock where it's, you know, some of your more expensive homes um, that is being addressed. But then there's the middle area. The middle area is going to be comprised of people who are builders, who are electricians, who are um, your plumbers and everything else, but also they're going to be your healthcare workers, your first responders. Um, they're going to be people in the hospitality industry where you might have one or two incomes in the house and you're, you're, you're wanting to step up and, and, you know, into home ownership so that you can have generational wealth transferred as you, you live out your lives and can, you know, can help build wealth and everything else. Um, and so it's really important for that home ownership to be a possibility for single family homes to be purchased by people in these, these type of career fields. But we find in our state, that missing middle has really stretched up into the upper echelon of some of the house pricing, where we're seeing in Chittenden County, if you can build a home right now as a builder um, at $500,000 or less, I'd be shocked, just because land acquisition costs, permitting costs, 
workforce costs, material costs that have more than tripled since the start of the pandemic. Yes, it's, it has it, its ebbs and flows as far as the prices going up and down, but all these factors, these stressors are being put into this mix and labor costs now going up. Um, with, with all these being considered, it makes the price of single fam, family home ownership that much more difficult to attain. So the missing middle component they're hoping to address, there's a pilot program coming out um, that the governor is proposing, and I know Maura Collins with the VHFA and Seth, uh, another gentleman that works with her, they are spearheading this to hopefully have a certain amount of money, they, the figure has been bantered around around $5 million, um, to place towards home ownership for workforce housing development, and, and that way that you can decrease the cost of the house for the initial purchase, yet not lose your equity necessarily when you go to sell the home later, but also have a component where any investment made by the state is going to be able to stay with that housing stock so that can transfer to the next individual who might move into that same house in, in, that's in the, the, the middle income. So the missing middle is basically the middle income exists, and these are the people who go out there day after day, do the work that we need done in the state and every different career field. But the housing, is it affordable for them? And that's, that's what we're talking about. To, to, to be quite candid, I benefited myself from a VHFA loan when we first got into our house about 20 years ago. That same house, since I've actually remodeled it and added on to it, whatever, I couldn't afford to build it today just because the housing prices have, have gotten so expensive. So I, I, I feel the effects myself. And so a lot of people are seeing this. And also you have the senior citizens who are going to be um, exiting the workforce and maybe wanting to downsize. Well, where are they going to downsize to if there isn't this affordable housing? And it's not just affordable housing as we thought about before. It's affordable housing, making housing affordable for people who could get into an 1,800-square-foot home or something like that and still keep it under $500,000 and make it attainable. And if that housing stock is not there, we're in a real deficit in the state. Agreed. Um, so we're right up against our first break. So um, just want everybody to know, even though we're remote, uh, we still are here for call-ins. The number is 802-244-1777. Um, and we'll uh, join Jim and I back after the break. Thanks. Christmas Eve Then and Now by White Windows. Christmas Eve Then. And Mama and her kerchief and I and my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. Tighten up that kerchief. It's going to be a cold one. It's that nasty draft from the window that's to blame. Away to the window I flew like a flash. Tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. Hurry, I think I see something. It's stuck. And Christmas Eve now. Look, it's Santa. What a clear, unobstructed view we get through our white windows. Quick, tilt it open. Hey, Santa, it's Jim. Those are some good-looking white tilt-and-turn windows. I know. Eight locking points keep them air and watertight, and they're made in New Jersey. That's my next stop. I have a new guitar for the boss. I heard him exclaim, and he drove out of sight. White windows for all, for a house cozy and tight. White windows, high-performance passive house windows and doors. Online at WITHEWindows.com. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Jim Bradley here with House Calls Vermont and my colleague and friend, Chris West. Here I am on the telephone, everyone from home. We're both sick, but we're still here for the show. And we were just talking about um, workforce development. I, I hear we have a call. So um, how can we help you? David Montpelier, go ahead. 
Oh, yeah, thanks. It's, it's not about the workforce development. Sure. Uh, That's okay. It's about, uh, I moved into a condo uh, years ago, and it had a, uh, I had it winterized or weatherized, uh, attic and seals and everything like that. Afterwards, I realized that I had a mostly but some portion unfinished concrete basement wall. Yes. So I pulled, I hired a guy to come in and put the uh, two-inch uh, styrofoam on that wall. And then in your presentation a few weeks ago, I heard that that was a fire hazard with if, if it wasn't uh, sheet, fireproof sheetrocked. I, so I started looking around because I didn't want to do the sheetrocking particularly, sure. uh, being an older guy. And I came, uh, one of the local supply places suggested that it might be possible to apply flex coat, which seems to be fire resistant, goes on like uh, uh, wet concrete, and I could build it up from build it from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. What do you know? Okay, a couple things here. Um, you definitely have to have a thermal and ignition barrier on any exposed insulation that's not already a fire rated material. There are rigid insulation board. Uh, uh, products out there called Thermax is one brand name, um, which already comes with a fire rating. So that is acceptable to leave exposed. But traditional blue board, pink board, green board, or even polyiso that some people will put against the the walls, left exposed, that is a fire hazard. And a lot of times, if they go as far as uh, the manufacturer, you'll see writing on the insulation. It says, do not leave exposed. This is a fire hazard. And we point that out to customers all the time and let them read that so they understand that, yeah, this definitely has to be covered up. So with that, different locales, different jurisdictions, especially in Montpelier, um, where they do have some inspections, uh, like Burlington does as well on some of the work that's done, they do require some type of ignition slash thermal barrier. That can be a cementuous-based product. Um, you can put a parging compound over that, and that qualify. Um, there's also what's called intumescent paint. Now, here's the thing about intumescent paint. It is a type of paint that when it heats up, it creates kind of like a protective eggshell over the product, giving you enough time before that would ignite to get out of the house because you don't want to stay in the you know, house if there's a fire, of course, so it gives you that time to get out. And that paint, if I was a professional doing the work, I would have to make sure that that paint was properly tested and rated with the product that I was providing. However, here's a little bit of a, a loophole. If you're a homeowner and you're looking to do this, this fire protection, you can go down to a local uh, paint store like Vermont Paint or something like that. They have an additive for latex paint, and it serves as that same purpose of creating that intumescent paint, and you can go ahead and paint that, mix it up appropriately, and then paint it over, uh, make sure you get really good coverage, and that will provide that barrier that you're looking for, um, and that should satisfy any insurance concerns, true health and safety concerns, anything like that, and it's relatively inexpensive to do that, and the paint that you get could be one of the mis- mixed batches that they had um, that could be less expensive, and that's one way to handle it pretty effectively. So um, I just jumped online since uh, I wanted to find out what Flexco was, and according to the uh, information that I'm seeing, <clears throat> Flexco is an accepted um, uh, ignition barrier. Um, I don't have any experience with it. Um, personally, I don't think Jim does either, um, so I definitely want to double-check that it would conform to the requirements of either um, the the town or city you're in or with the state. So um, I think we should, uh, in order, before I would give you the okay to paint it with FlexCoat, if you don't, or if you aren't interested in necessarily doing the um, 
uh, intermittent paint additive that Jim was just talking about. If you send us an email there at uh, housecallsvt at gmail.com, we'll do a little more background work to make sure that that um, particular paint product conforms with what's required. How's that sound, Dave? That sounds good. I, I, I didn't know your email address, so that's what I expect. I wanted to do it in the first place. So I'll send you an email with the details. And I don't want to just slow it down. I want to make it uh, fire resistant. You know, I don't want it to be able to support fire at any point. And I didn't realize that when I put it on the wall. So, uh, And I'll put that in the email, too. I appreciate your help today. Certainly, Dave. Sure, Thanks absolutely. For Thank you, Dave, for calling, and have a nice rest of your weekend. You, too. Bye. So, Chris, you know, we were talking before the break about this workforce development issue, and, and I did touch briefly on the stigma associated with the career path, um, especially in school, because so many times we've heard from some of the people that run the programs, um, the technical training centers, and there's 17, I mean, most people don't know this, there are 17 technical training centers around the state that Vermont funds. Um, and unfortunately, in, in years past, um, that has been an avenue by which some kids who've had more challenges in school have been farmed into. Not exclusively, but that has been one. You know, if they didn't think that they were going to go on to higher education with college or something like that, they said, well, at least you can go this direction. And like I said, it became the last resort instead of the first choice. And now everything has shifted so much where we have such a lack of true carpenters, craftsmen, you know, artisans in this career field, and more and more, like I said, exiting 60% of them are exiting the, the workforce on a continual basis. We need people in these positions that can have a really rewarding, really well-paying career field. And at the same time, though, we had to, as a state, you know, I talked to our lobbyists the other day about, you know, right now, since we are talking to the legislature about all these different initiatives and where funding is going to go, you know, you can have the best program there of what you want to get done if you don't have the key component of workers it's not going to get done, and we, we're going to miss all of our goals of climate, uh, you know, uh, changes and you know, reduction, and also building more efficient housing stock and middle-income um, housing stock and everything else. So we have to change our level of thinking. We can't just be in the mindset of let's try to put out a fire. Let's make sure that we're sowing good seed for a better harvest. And if that's what's crucial here. And so doing so, we have to be able to make sure that guidance counselors in the schools and parents in the home understand that this is a valuable and much-needed and rewarding career field. It's not just, well, Jill or Johnny can only do this. No, it's I hope they can. I need them to be able to do this. I need to be able to, to have skilled, teachable workforce individuals to be added to the company and to be added to the state because otherwise that part of our infrastructure, when it comes to actual people, we're going to be in such a deficit. And it's not just it's going to happen someday in the future. It's happening now. But we can turn this ship if we, as a populace, will contact our legislators, let them know what's important. I mean, everybody out there is listening right now, I'm sure, has had the difficulty this, during this time, uh, which is only going to increase if something, something doesn't change, just to find a handy person to come out and fix something simple that you may not be able to do yourself. But, you know, the, even, Chris, I think you have an individual that is doing that now that can work every hour of the day. I think you said they're making $75 an hour, hour after hour. That's a well-paying job the last time I checked. Yeah, um, that was a, a colleague of mine. He was saying that um, he's able to have enough work as a, as a handyman, uh, making $75 an hour, and he can work as much as he wants. Um, so there's no question that there's a need in the state to increase the entry-level people from high school, but also new Vermonters and other 
exactly. other sources of of uh, people who can enter into this workforce and provide bodies for us to to get out and do this work. Um, the state did, um, after we spoke all the time about uh, S one hundred nine last year. <clears throat> pardon me. Instead of going ahead and passing that, they pulled it back, and they're actually funding that outside. The, I, I don't know the exact terminology, whether it's general funds money or whatever, but they decided not uh, after that bill didn't get passed that they still wanted to put money into that, and Efficiency Vermont and other organizations are working to develop a weatherization um, workforce development process and that seems to be going pretty well. Um, hoping that that will will get legs and and, and keep going, and but to and be clear, <clears throat> that will get the increase. I mean, last week we had Dwight DeCosta on from the Champlain Valley Office of Economic Opportunity, but we call the OEOs, and there are five of those um, throughout the state. I remember Dwight saying there's five plus one, so there's kind of six, and those are the um, state-funded uh, organizations and and also federally funded that are in charge of weatherization for um, low-income Vermonters, for, for people who don't have the money to do that work themselves but desperately need their houses to be improved upon. So we know there, and if I remember correctly, Jim, uh, Dwight was saying he's been asked by the state, as have the other OEOs, to double their workforce next year and then again to double it the year after that. Yes, and Which is something you and I were talking about last year when we were trying um, you know, and working with the uh, the weatherization collaborative to uh, ask the state to go ahead and get behind uh, developing this workforce. Now, whether or not the bodies will be there, whether or not we're able to find the people, I think you brought up a very good point that in the past 20 years, uh, after a great deal of investment of time and resources, the state has got these 17 uh, training centers throughout the state that help with both <clears throat> high school and adult training, and they're woefully underutilized. And you're right. I think that there's been a, a kind of a social stigma attached to this, that if you're in high school, you should go to college, and that's the right path. Um, but you and I both know <laughs> a lot of people who have gone through college, millennials and others, who after spending uh, $100,000 or more for an education don't have the credentials to get a job any better than, than a barista at a, a Starbucks. And that's not always the case by any means, but it does happen on a regular basis. And we do know that there are also children, uh, uh, young adults in high school, who may be better suited uh, from their own point of view not to go into an academic pursuit, but to go into a technical pursuit where they can quickly and easily make a good living, feel good about themselves, have a development trajectory. I mean, what's one of the other things that Dwight was talking about, they know that this is hard work, and they they do their best to move people throughout their organization to make sure that there's the opportunity for them to develop professionally. Well, you know, Chris, I think what's so important here is, you know, first of all, S109 that Chris was speaking about, that initiative was all about weatherization. And, yes, that they're still wanting to do that. What I understand by that is, if that money is not spent appropriately within a given time frame, the money goes away. It gets returned. And so I know there's some lamenting going on of, okay, well, how do we find enough companies that can do this work and do it effectively? And so that's part of the challenge. What we need is for 
people who are not just the, the youth that are coming up, that's really important, but even the transitional workforce, whether you're retiring out of the military, whether you are a new American or a new Vermonter, you're coming in here and seeing that this is a viable opportunity to, to make a, a, a really appreciable income that um, continues to increase as you get better because eventually, you know, you, you, that's the thing with our generation, I think the current generation right now, is the fact of are we willing to make the investment into the long term? Most people want results right now. We want to show even at the, the, the state house level, they want to see results right now. And that's why some of the transitional housing that's been able to be developed through taking an old hotel or motel and making it livable has seen some great successes, but has been well received. I get that. It was an immediate need. But in the long term, it's going to take that seed time and that investment in the workforce and in the housing stock to have something that remains on the other side. Because, you know, when you get into your career field, I was looking back the other day, Chris, and when I was thinking about all this, I remember when I was 18, I um, had started college but had not finished at the time, and I took a job in the trades, and I was lumping concrete five-gallon buckets up and down stairs all day long. I would had concrete all over my hand. I was had rode a motorcycle home, and I had, like, the concrete, the lie in the concrete had, had caused sores in my hands, even on the side of my head where I kept carrying that bucket, and I was miserable, cold, frigid, and I just said, what am I doing here? And at that time, it looked pretty bleak, but now on the other side of this, after being in this for three decades and knowing the value of it and how you can change people's lives, how you can do great good for the overall environment and everything else by what we're doing. It's a rewarding, rewarding career. And when we can, like Chris and I do, help out others, homeowners, contractors, people looking to get into this field, it's, it's great. But it didn't happen overnight. It took a long-term investment. And yet, right now, even in the short term, if you get into the trades, no matter what age you happen to be, and you know nothing, the wages are commensurate with what you may need for it to, you know, to, to, to do well in our, in our economy. So, I mean, it's a great place to get started, but changing things at the level of the, of the state within the school structure, we have a tradition of schools wanting to see how many people they can get sent into higher education. Well, there needs to be that same importance placed on somebody who can go into the trades. And when I say trades, yes, it's in the construction industry, but it's just, you know some of the other technicians that are needed in various, from dental hygienists to whatever. I mean, it, these these jobs are out there, and we need people to go into those. And putting a stigma upon them that's negative, like the last resort, once again, is not the way to go about this because it's not the last resort. It's a highly needed profession across the board that pays really well. So contacting your state legislature, especially this during this time when the legislative session really has taken off, get behind this. Give a call to them, you know, see them at the you know, the local dining establishment or out in the you know, the, the public and say, Listen, this is important. We can't let this thing just have a can get kicked down the road for another day because that, that other day that we have known about for twenty five years with the changes in the workforce is today. And we have to do something about this if we're going to expect anything to be in place for us in the long term. Because right now, so it's a broken system. Um, that's a that's a call to action, everyone. I just want to put it out there. Jim yeah. is uh, encouraging, and I I am with him 100 percent to contact your your state representatives and to say that workforce development and workforce development housing, which uh, is paired to that very directly, are high priorities for us, and we want to make sure that this legislative session does something. It is unfortunate that the way our our, our federal government uh, funding works is these large bunches of money that are there for a little bit and then dry up because it causes the state to have to figure out the best way to use this money. 
and that is often not one that's conducive to a good long-term strategy. But let's hope that that the uh, the, the very smart and elected people over in, in Montpelier um, hear what we say and uh, understand that that we want um, we want affordable housing for our workforce um, and we want a decent wage for our workforce, but we also want to develop that workforce so that we have the people to come out and do the work. Um, doing the renovation right now. I've never swung a hammer in the field before. Not my thing, but um, I know what to do. Um, and I'm working on a house uh, for a couple in central Vermont, and that's going very well. We had to take a break because, unfortunately, one of my workers came down with COVID. Um, <clears throat> but that being said, um, we're paying my workers very well in order to, to have them out there. So... Um, uh, it's important that we understand that that the argument of fifteen dollars an hour we're we're, we're we're past that right yeah. fifteen dollars an hour is is basically what what uh you know uh it's not enough money to get someone to come out and and learn how to be a carpenter or a weatherization tech no exactly so you know as chris says this is is a call to action for the state house uh for people that you could give a call i know locally Representative Stevens in Waterbury, he's heading up a committee right now that's taking testimony on the on these uh, issues, and he's been very receptive. We've had great discussions. I know Senator Sorokin and Senator Clarkson on the other side of the, uh, the uh, legislature are also taking up the same initiatives. <clears throat> so if they, one of them happened to represent you and your your district, certainly give them a call and just call who who does rep- who would represent you to get the word out there that this is a big push because we can't keep waiting for it to be handled by somebody else because you're going to be making the calls if you're not already and trying to get somebody out to your house to do the work to build a new home. I know some builders, Chris, they're looking they're booking into 2024. And that's tough as a builder because you think in one respect, oh, gosh, I have some security of, of continued work. But on the other side, you're pricing things out with today's pricing, with today's understanding of labor issues and material issues and everything else, which are already challenging. How do we have the ability to foresee what's going to happen a year and a half from now? You know, And so that makes it really, really tough. And it's, it's a whole other dynamic that I don't think we're really ready for as a, the building industry. So we have to have better reliable variables, you know, um, of of the workforce, of material delivery, um, you know, and yep. avail- availability, and, and also cost of cost of actual money for for mortgages at the same time. Yep, uh, I did get an email the other day from uh, our lobbyist um, Andrew Brewer, who was talking about um, that uh, the other bill that we were looking at last year, that H one fifty seven, the contractor registry. Yes. And we had Scott Campbell, Representative Scott Campbell, on last year to discuss this as well. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, that is now uh, walking around the halls again. Uh, we're very happy that it is. Yes. Um, Vermont uh, has uh, absolutely no uh, requirements uh, for someone to get into the building industry, um, except if you're doing one of the ones that has a lot of liability associated with it, uh, a plumber, an electrician, an HVAC specialist, right? Those ones are very well regulated by the Office of Professional Regulation. And what we've been hoping is that the state will finally take a stance on the Wild West atmosphere of contractors and not ask for a licensure, not ask for everyone to get, um, you know, some type of, you know, six months of training. All we want, very simply, (laughs) is to have a registry that a company that is going to be out there building houses, renovating houses, have some very basic required things, like one, that they tell the state that they're doing this, two, that they have basic insurance. Yes. And 
three, that they take uh, a little bit of, of education along the way. Now, I don't think that the bill required the education. That's something that Jim and I were hoping would, would be added on. But right now, this is, um, be, this is sitting between uh, the, the uh, Assembly and the, the Senate, and the, the uh, discussion is whether or not the amount of money for a job that triggers the requirement that a, a company register is $2,500 or $3,500. Yep. Now, I don't think you can swing a, a dead cat at something without charging $3,500, so I think that <laughs> it's a perfectly good number. And I hope that the two sides can come together and come to some kind of agreement and get this, this bill passed, because we really do need to be able to track who in the state is working as a builder. Um, we, uh, we're not interested, like I said, in heavy-handed legis- you know, uh, legislature coming up with laws that make a licensure, but at the very least, we should know who in the state is out there building the most expensive thing that most people will buy. Um, and we've seen way too many examples in our own personal lives of uh, and professional lives of companies that have been out there and just not doing the right thing. So also, if, you're, if you um, agree with us that uh, uh, a registry, which is a very low bar requirement, is a good idea, then we would also recommend that you get in touch with your, your state representatives and ask them what their stance is on that and form your own opinion. Um, Chris, and with I know that, that um, we are right up against our second break. So uh, when we get back, we'll talk about the indoor air quality survey, which is still going on, and also ask you about your your cold weather journal, whether you've been keeping that, and to remind you to. And uh, we'll see you after the break. Good afternoon, and once again, this is Jim Bradley with House Calls Vermont. We're with Chris West as well, my friend and colleague. I'm here. Yep, and we're doing a little bit of a remote situation just because of some of the sicknesses that <laughs> have been going around. Um, but we're on today. We just were talking about workforce development, but we want to transition after the break here to a topic that, once again, is timely, and it's something that Chris has been dealing with on a project that he's been working on. Um, and I know a lot of you guys have probably been seeing this lately, and it has something to do with icicles, Chris. Yes, yes. So, um like I said earlier in the show, I'm uh, doing uh, an energy retrofit on a house in central Vermont where the uh, client's complaint was icicles and ice dams. And so we just wanted to uh, circle back to this. This is one of the topics we go over quite a lot. Um, so icicles and ice dams are almost always uh, caused by warm air hitting the underside of the sheathing of a sloped roof. <clears throat> the slope roof that um, oftentimes is associated with a knee wall, although not always. The one I'm working with right now is uh, a cold knee wall. And what is a knee wall? So let's just uh, think about uh, a cape. It's ca- classic cape construction. You've got your first floor, and from the top of the first floor going up to the second floor, your roof is already starting, right? And <clears throat> oftentimes what we'll have is on the second floor we'll have a slightly smaller room, not uh, not quite as wide as from eave to eave, and that room then has a triangular um, spot in the, um, uh, between the top of the, um, the roof, where the roof hits the outside wall, and where that room actually comes in, and that is the knee wall. 
And what we usually try to do is we try to make sure that that knee wall space is brought into the thermal envelope. And by that, we'd mean that we'd want to insulate on the slope and what we call the cheeks, which is the gable end bits, these two little small triangles. Um, but it's not always possible. And that's what we found here in this particular house is that the way that the framing was done in the joists, in the, in the trusses, it was much easier to go ahead and make sure that the air sealing and insulation on the flat and the wall of the knee wall is where we went with the thermal envelope. And in order to do that, what we're looking at is trying to reduce the thermal bridging through the studs, the knee wall walls, which were in this case were about five feet tall, were a two by four stud with two by six insulation stuffed in that two by four stud. So the insulation stuck out a little, but it didn't do anything about the thermal bridging of the actual two by four stud. That is much more conductive than the insulation. So what we did here is that we took some of that extra insulation out so that the insulation fit properly in the two by four wall. The two by four wall, three and a half inches, now has three and a half inches of fiberglass in it instead of five and a half inches, which is what the builder put in, in a uh, uh, well-intended but not very effective attempt to make sure that the uh, that the insulation was going to keep that warm that, that room warm, and what we're going to go back with is two inches of a rigid insulation on the outside of that wall. So, what we often do when we're talking about assemblies is we start from the inside and we move outside until we're in the outside air. And this particular assembly is the inside surface, which here is a kind of a a wood cladding, and then a piece of uh, plywood, and then the studs, 16 on center with fiberglass in between them, and then two inches of rigid insulation, which is installed in such a way as to be air sealed and to stop thermal bridging. And what that does is that creates the what we would call a perfect wall, where the amount of rigid insulation is high enough that we're not expecting to get cold temperatures on the inside of that insulation. And we've talked about the first condensing layer in the past. That is the first layer of hard material, so not fiberglass and not cellulose, going from inside to outside that a uh, bit of air that has moisture in it might hit and condense water into the wall. So in our climate, that mix, fluffy to rigid, is about a 50-50 mix. So if we're going to build a wall and we want that to be a good wall, and it's two by six walls, then we need to have, because a two by six wall has an R, about an R20 to R23 in the fluffy, you need an R23 on the original on the outside to make sure that that first condensing layer is not below the dew point and therefore will not um, be cold enough for moist air that touches it or moisture that moves through the wall, that, that vapor drive, right, would hit that and cause condensation. So in this particular house, Although we usually go to the slopes, we're going to insulate, super-insulate the flats and the walls, and that's what we're doing. If you are living in a house and you're noticing ice dams, then it's a good idea to have an energy audit done to make sure that that can be dealt with. Because as Jim and I both know, icicles and ice dams are not just pretty, they're also issues with durability. Well, Chris, here, here are a couple things that, you know, some of our listeners can look with a simple test of what to look for on your home. Now, granted, you may have some icicles 
that are not problematic, but they're usually going to be tiny, and sometimes they'll occur underneath a skylight, which that's a whole other story. But you know, <laughs> when, we're, when we're really getting concerned here in this situation is look up. How big is the ice? Is the ice going from the eaves all the way down to the ground in a nice little column of ice? You know, if you go up to Stowe, there are a few uh, resorts that were built back in the 80s and 90s up there that I've seen that, where it's two stories up and there's a 30-foot column of ice, it seems like, going all the way down. And that may look neat, but it's not good for the building science and what's happening behind the scenes for the durability of the building. And so look up. If you see the ice, do you have soffit vents? And is some of that ice coming down through the soffit vents? Or even worse, as you get back towards that interior wall on the exterior siding side, are you seeing ice in between, like let's say you have horizontal beveled siding. If you're seeing ice come through that, those pieces of siding, that means there's water in the wall. And once water gets in the wall like that, any insulation in there, it starts to degrade. So it's really a, um, a progressive failure in the sense where it starts getting the insulation wet, then the insulation has to dry back out in the next year, but it doesn't have the same R value ever again, and it's going to be a weak point in that assembly going forward. And then you could also have issues where you'll see water inside the wall on the inside, where it's discoloring the sheetrock or it's discoloring your ceiling. Rest assured, that's not a good sign, especially like let's say you look outside and you see some of that um, icing occurring maybe through the siding, maybe through the soffit, or on the edge of the eave, and it's discolored. It looks like iced tea, if you will, um, literally iced, um, but it has that color, the tannins in there. That means it's interacting with the building materials behind the scenes and then re-daylighting and freezing and telling you, hey, there's a problem here. Chris was saying, you know, this is attributed to heat loss, and there can be a lot of different reasons why the heat loss is occurring. You could also have an older home where they didn't have an energy heal along the eave, so there wasn't enough or space tech, to put enough insulation um, in Joe there. Joe and Callis, how can we help you today? Um, this is a small 150-year-old brick house with two layers of brick uh, and three layers of brick in some sections, and it was renovated about 50 years ago, and they put two-by-four walls in with um, eight, nine, R19 insulation. Um, I was told by somebody that you can't foam an inside of a thick old brick wall because it would uh, it would make the wall damaged or frosty or something like that. Not, I was just wondering about your opinion about all this. Hello. Sir, can you hear me? Hello. 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 Did you get my question? I did not, but can you hear me, sir? Yes, now I can, yeah. Okay, you have a little technical difficulties, but if you go ahead with your question again, sir, please. Okay. Um, uh, this is, I have a 50-year-old, 150-year-old brick house with three layers of brick on the outside. Okay. It was renovated about 50 years ago, and they put studding and only four inches of fiberglass. Wes, sorry, we had a slight technical issue there. Um, and okay, so you had fiberglass, and you had fiberglass on the, um, on, on there was the a stud inside. wall built to the inside of the, of the building. Is that how they did it, sir? And then they put fiberglass in between there? Yeah, they put it, yes, on the inside. Okay. Uh, I was told that you can't really use foam on a on a, an old brick wall because it'll deteriorate if you do? Yes. Does that make sense? 
It does. There are concerns there, but there's also concerns about putting any fibrous insulation directly to brick at the same time because there's a, there's a huge amount of moisture migration potential through the brick wall and into that insulation, which will destroy the insulation, but also, you know, it turns the insulation from an insulator to a conductor. So it's going to transfer the heat more readily um, back and forth. And so you don't want that, or you don't want a sponge against your brick because it can cause a lot of moisture issues. And the, the fiberglass can serve as that sponge if it's in direct contract with a cementuous based material like brick or concrete or something like that. And we see this far too often, even in concrete walls in the basement where people will put fiberglass directly against the, the, the concrete, and that's a no-go. You shouldn't do that. But in this situation, usually what is a good idea is to have a smart membrane, a membrane that basically says, I'm going to allow the assembly to dry appropriately, yet keep bulk water moisture out, is to have that against the surface of, of the wall first before you put anything in front of it. It's true if continuous... Um, uh, uh, insulation is placed on the inside of the brick, what can happen is it changes the dynamic of how that brick wall functions during the, the, you know, the, the heating and cooling cycles uh, of different times of year. And what can happen is the water can then get into the wall assembly. It doesn't really effectively dry out, but then what happens is while it gets trapped in that wall, it then can sprawl. It can, it can expand as it freezes, and then it, it, it pushes the brick off or chips of it start coming off. And you can see that where people with good intentions try to go with that material on the inside, but they didn't give respect to how that assembly is going to be um, addressed. But Chris, yeah, I'm hoping he's back on with us. He yeah, actually I'm back on. Home. Sorry, there was a, a, a bit of a glitch. Um, this is a You're, perfect example of why I insulated my brick house to the outside. Um, yeah, and I know that, that that's a, a big no-no. Most people don't want to insulate a brick house to the outside because um, brick is beautiful. Um, but if you have a an old-type brick um, or if you put too much insulation on the inside of the brick, you'll create that spalling danger that Jim was just talking about where you move the dew point into the brick and that dew point then, uh, or the freeze point, I mean, into the brick, and that causes spalling. So uh, insulating brick buildings on the inside is a very, very tricky thing in our climate, and there are very, um, there are good things to do to make sure that, that your brick is the type of brick that would be less uh, susceptible to spalling, um, but it is not recommended without a good deal of building science investigation before you do it. So what you're suggesting, this is a, this is, is, is an historic outside uh, brick house. So yep. I can't put anything to the outside. Should I tear out all the insulation and uh, put that uh, water seal in and then re-insulate with something thicker? So that's, that's where things get difficult um, on how thick you can go. Um, okay. What I've seen just uh, back of the envelope type of calculation for Vermont is you should never go more than like an R8 or an R10 on the inside of a brick wall, yep. specifically to reduce the chance that you move the freezing plane into the brick and create spalling, which isn't good for the preservation of the building, right? Okay. So um, it, it's a little trickier and not something I want to give you advice directly on, on the show without knowing more about your situation. So okay. if you could do us a favor and, you know, once again, send us an email to housecallsvt at gmail.com, and we can follow up with you on the proper way to move forward. Um, I'm much more comfortable giving people advice on wood frame structures in Vermont 
brick is a is a whole different uh, ballpark. How's that? But I, I would say that having a fibers type of insulation serve directly against the brick is not a good idea whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you for calling. So uh, we're we're getting really close to the end of the show. Uh, thank you all for your patience. Um, it's been a bit of a challenge, both of us being out of the studio. Hopefully, we'll both be fully healed and and back in the studio next week. But I did want to bring up a couple things. First of all, the indoor air quality uh, survey is going along. We've got uh, two houses surveyed out of the twelve or so that have applied, and I'm hoping to get the uh, the indoor air quality monitors out to three more houses this week, and that'll take two weeks for them to get the data. So if you're interested in this um, in, in this survey that we're doing, indoor air quality survey, you can send us an email at housecallsvt at gmail.com, and we'll put you on the list. And uh, also, uh, in the past, I've asked you to start keeping a cold weather journal on comfort and durability issues in your house. And if you haven't started that, it's a perfect time to start it because it's really cold. And if you're going to have the ability to observe any of the building science issues that are going on with your house, the colder it is, the more obvious those become. So if you haven't started the journal, we highly recommend it. And also, I just wanted to point out um, that those windows that uh, that sponsor us, the white windows, W-Y-T-H-E windows are pronounced white and not Whitey, as Joel has done such a good job of trying to get around that word. I get it. It's a difficult one. Um, and our good friend Darren Macri from White Windows has been a great supporter. Um, and, Jim, uh, what do you think about uh, about this next week? In what respect, sir? Uh, about how uh, how the weather's going to change. Oh, are we gosh. Are going to get any warm weather, yeah. or are we just going to be stuck in winter for another month? No, I think the big challenge is that we're going to see, you know, we're supposed to be getting some snow on on Monday, and we're not the weather people, but what this whole thing about icicles and the ice dams, these are the perfect conditions in which these things start to form. When you get these big temperature swings, you get precipitation on the roof, and, you know, you go from the highs and the lows and everything else, it can really play havoc on everything. And so um, definitely keep an eye on these things. Um, You know, granted, we we still are not out of the the woods yet as far as some of the temperatures. are going to be pretty cold, but I would definitely keep an eye on the icicles. Keep an eye on what they're doing if they're starting to form inside your soffit, like I said, in the soffit vents or through the siding, or you're seeing, unfortunately, some staining on the inside of the ceilings or walls. And if that happens, you really want to make note of that and give us a call, give us an email, and we can help walk you through the process of a home performance assessment and getting these things handled appropriately. Absolutely. Well, Jim, it's it's another week gone by, and uh, this was uh, probably the hardest show we'd have to do technically, but um, yes. I appreciate your... Uh, you're sticking with it and uh, letting me call back in when, when I got this connected. Um, uh, if you are interested in getting in touch with us, not only about the indoor air quality survey, but about any questions that you have, please send us an email at housecallsvt at gmail.com. That's housecallsvt at gmail.com. We also have our YouTube channel where we have a bunch of videos from shows that we've done, but also instructional videos for different assemblies, including that knee wall Assembly, we've got an interesting video on there talking about the knee wall. Uh, that is youtube.com slash C slash House Calls Vermont. And until next week, this is Chris West. And Jim Bradley. You all have a good week. Thank you very Bye, much. Bye, everybody.
Just Cause Vermont has been brought to you by R.K. Miles, a third-generation family-owned business, proud to be your local building materials supplier. Find a location near you at rkmiles.com. By Poly Construction, for over 30 years known for anything construction, big or small jobs, one call does it all, P-O-L-L-I construction.com. And by Wytha Windows, high-performance passive house windows and doors. Online at W-Y-T-H-E windows.com. By Ken Libby of the Stowe Area Realty Group at Keller Williams Stowe. Your trusted advisor, 802-793-2002. By Curtis Lumber, with two locations in Vermont, Williston and Burlington. Request a quote for your next project online at curtislumber.com. By Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, with locations in St. Albans, Enosburg, Swanton, Derby, and Middlesex. By Shamrock Painting, painting and custom wood finishing, shamrockpainting.com. By Matt Clark's Northern Basement Systems, for all things basementy, northernnefoundations.com. Be sure to join us next Saturday at 12.30 during the noon hour for House Calls Vermont here on WDEV FM and AM.